The Deviation Podcast. Welcome to the Deviation Podcast. I'm Paige, and today we have James Phillips with us. James, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, Paige. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, my name is James Phillips. I am currently active duty Marine Special Operator. Um, I live in North Carolina. Um, yeah, that's my that's my brief intro. <laughs> <laughs> and we both know there's there's a lot more there, which thankfully we'll be able to get into. Um, so how did, how did everything start for you? When did you join the Marines? Where were you born? Just start from square one, if you don't mind. Okay. So square one, um, a little unique, I guess. I was born in England, um, lived in the countryside near Stonehenge. I have to give like a geographical reference point or else nobody really knows where in England that kind of is, but it's west of London by like 45 minutes. Um, lived on a farm growing up. We had all kinds of animals and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I was not an athletic child at all. <laughs> um, I had severe al- allergies and all that kind of stuff, but uh grew up in England, moved to the United States when I was 11. Um, uh, parents remarried. And my mom's new husband moved over here with a internet security job, so moved to Virginia uh, was where we settled down. Um, I really didn't have any super crazy plans. So growing up, I had some learning disabilities and that kind of stuff because the education system in England is nuts. I was doing French and Latin, Latin, um, before I was even 10, so. Really? I mean, it's not not for everybody, apparently. (laughs) I ended up taking sign language in high school just because I was so scarred from it, but um, that's that's another story. But, so I moved to the United States, and I kind of grasped onto this entire thing of the American dream, and uh, that I could be whatever I wanted to be, and this was a new, a new leaf for me, and I could go on whatever path that I desired. And my parents did a really good job of, you know, uh, you can be whatever you want to be if you put in the work and the time and the effort. So that was really kind of the environment I grew up in, uh, that nothing is impossible. So from that foundational principle, it's kind of driven my entire life, I guess. Um, so came here in sixth grade. I uh, lost my accent real quickly because... U.S. kids are not too nice. <laughs> and no, especially years, not at that different. age. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, all the little girls liked it when I was young, but none of the little boys. So if I wanted to have friends, I Americanized super fast. Um, but I was still that kind of pudgy, not really coordinated athletic kid until about eighth grade. Um, in eighth grade, they used to have this physical fitness test called the PACER. and um, used to run from one side of the gym to the other side of the gym. And um, 
a beep would sound, and the beep would progressively get faster and faster uh, depending on what level you got to. And if you didn't make it to the other side before the beep went off again, then you're kind of out of the game. And I ended up setting a school record <laughs> for this pacer drill thing, I guess. Um, <clears throat> and then from there, they asked me if I wanted to be on a track team. So I think I ended up running like the 400 meters, which was not what I ended up doing later in my life at all. But that kind of started the whole running gambit for me. Um, so when I went to high school, uh, my mom dropped me off at track practice freshman year, first day of track practice, just left me at the track. And I met the coach, and he was some 26-year-old guy, and he happened to be from England. So kind of had it, hit it off right away, and I ended up running track. And uh, from there, I... From there, I made varsity. I was captain senior year. I got a scholarship to George Mason University for um, cross country. Uh, we won state senior year high school too, which is pretty cool. And uh, yeah, so that was the first thing, just making it to college. Uh, in England, I was completely set on dropping out of school at 16 and working for my real dad's construction company and not really amounting to much at all. So, you know, coming to America, was already presenting new opportunities that I didn't ever envision were in the cards for me. So going to college was huge. Uh, college was definitely a bit of a transition for me as an individual. I didn't really have uh, – running for me became like an outlet. Um, but then college, it became more of a job, which was difficult for me. I chose a school which was close to home. Um, just because I wasn't quite ready to make that leap. And I, I think I was dating a girl at the time, which I kind of based that decision upon. I think some some guys do that, um, which obviously didn't last. But um, from the running standpoint, it just wasn't fun anymore. And uh, I wasn't performing to where I was after I was coming back from an injury. And I kind of wanted to get away from everything. So that's when I joined the Marine Corps. Uh, end of sophomore year going into junior year of college. Um, my, Do you remember what was the, like, deciding factor for that? Like, what was there Was there a moment that things shifted for you and you decided you wanted to take a different track? Um, well, I'll, I think everybody from our generation, you know, um, can kind of pinpoint when and where they were when 9-11 happened. And um, I'll never forget, I was in middle school, middle school sitting in the classroom. Uh, it was break time, I think, before lunch. And um, sitting in the classroom, the TV was on, and they were covering the first tower when it got hit uh, as the plane hit the second tower. And I just remember everybody's emotion and what that meant. and uh, after listening to Mike's interview, you know, we've been a peacetime military, we've been a peacetime country for so long. I remember, I remember America was this place where you could leave your car unlocked and it was safe. And, um, the fact that we got hit on our own turf was always something that kind of sat with me. And after running track and all these other things, I always thought that, you know, the military would be something that I could excel at. And, um, 
do do well within. And I think in college, I didn't really have a left and right lateral limit, and uh, I didn't really have a lot of direction. And I was kind of a punk kid that you know was gifted with some talents of running. Um, I did decently well at school, but I didn't really want to apply myself. Um, and I kind of wanted an, an easy out. And I think I was looking at going and doing some work out west, uh, just volunteering for some stuff. And my big sister recommended that I look into the military. So I actually marched into the Air Force recruiter <laughs> uh, in Virginia and went in there. And I was like, I would like to enlist. And the guy was on the phone eating a McDonald's hamburger and giving me hand and arm signals to hold on for a minute. And I was like, I'm about to sign over my life of service to you, and you're telling me to hold on while you're eating some junk food. And that was my first impression. So I literally walked right out of there, went next door to the Marine Corps recruiter, uh, walked in, and uh, was like, I I would like to enlist. So went through that whole process and that's really how it happened. I ran a PFT, which is our physical fitness test. And obviously at the time I was still running pretty quickly. I ran, I think in the 16s for three miles, which now as a Marine is pretty unheard of, but honestly, you know, for, for college track athletes, that's, that's not really that great of a time. So that wasn't overly difficult for me who had been running at that point for, seven years or so um so right away they were like well you know we'll give you we'll give you a bonus if you would like to enlist like as soon as possible and i was you know i never really had much money other than cutting lawns or whatever in my life so when they offered me the sum of money i was like wow yeah definitely gonna join the military um and you know get away from home and travel and serve my country and everything else and um so the recruiter originally asked me if, you know, do you want to be a turret gunner? My mother my mother said, you can go in and list, but whatever you're going to do, you're not going to be an infantryman, which I kind of had a little bit of a hard time swallowing just because, you know, I wanted to serve in a capacity where I could make a difference, I think. Um, I don't think it comes to that full, you know, logical thought process of, hey, I want to make a difference at that point in my life, but I think that me- that meant more to me than being some staff position or something else, but um, so I think a lot of people get gotten by the recru- recruiter. I couldn't go reconnaissance because I was still a British citizen. Um, I couldn't go canine handler because same same reasons. You have to be able to rate a clearance and all those kinds of things, which I didn't. So he asked me if I want to be a turret gunner because at the time during the war, the IEDs were so bad that uh, the transportation MOSs, they couldn't get enough guys. So I was like, heck yeah, I'll be a turret gunner. Um, signed the paperwork, went off to boot camp, uh, went through boot camp, you know, was scared to uh, walk and chew and all that other stuff because I've been indoctrinated into the military so hardcore. Um at Marine Corps boot camp that I kind of they kind of break you down to this foundational level and then build you back up. That's the whole process of boot camp for the Marine Corps, I guess. From there I went to uh some combat training and then I found myself in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri 
learning how to drive Humvees and trucks, which I was like, where, where, where am I and why am I doing this? So, <laughs> <laughs> not exactly shooting a machine gun off of a truck at the time. So long story short, sir, um, uh, I ended up getting stationed in California with an artillery unit where I was in charge of maintaining the batteries, trucks, and everything else. And uh, for people that don't know, I was in Twin Palms, California, which is literally in the Mojave Desert, which is like some of the hottest places um, in that side of the country, like 120 degrees in the summertime. Ooh, um, wow. So we ended up deploying twice um, just to the Pacific, to the Philippines, that kind of thing doing some foreign internal defense training of other other countries' militaries and that kind of stuff. Um, and that was my first four years in the Marine Corps. Um, at that point, I I kind of wanted to get out, and I was kind of done with it. It wasn't going to end up being what I wanted it to be. I didn't get to go to Afghanistan. We ended up getting replaced by a reservist unit, and um, I was a little bitter because I didn't get to do my part. And uh, I think a lot of guys struggle with that. I think a lot of guys struggle with, um, you know, they got friends that get to go over there and do all these things, and we train our entire lives for war. You know, I think I, I, I did. I don't, I don't know if everybody sees it like that, but um, I wanted, I wanted to be over there. I mean, that's that's the whole reason I joined. That's the whole reason I put up with what I put up with. Um, and everything else, so I never got that opportunity at the time to go go to where the heart of the action was at. Um, so so I did you feel like you what, weren't? Did you feel like you weren't so much making a difference because of it? Right. I, th- I think that's. I think that's the conclusion I came to. I thought I wanted to get out and uh, do something completely different, but I really didn't have a plan. Um, so our commanding officer at the time, our CO. Uh, his name was Captain Tamanjan, I'm pretty sure. Um, he, before he came to the artillery unit, was with Anglico, and they are responsible for attaching to other units and calling in air or fires and stuff from naval guns and mortars or aircrafts and stuff like that in support of a ground force. Um, so, I had a lot of respect for this guy. He had a very you know, um, humbling command presence, but he was a human being at the same time. A lot, a lot of people I've been exposed to up until that point in time were, you know, very robotic Marine Corps, um, do this because I told you to do it and that sort of thing, you know. And that's how the military, I think, from where I am now, you, you need order and discipline, especially on a battlefield because, um, Following a command is literally the difference between life and death, you know. So that's that's the environment that we grew up in. But this individual is the first time that he pulled me into his office and he said, um, James, and that's the first time somebody called me by my first name. He said, James, what what is your plan? And I was like, sir. And he's like, don't call me sir, call me David. And I was like, uh, you know, it's super weird for me as a corporal in the Marine Corps, E4, talking to a captain in the Marine Corps um, by his first name. And we had this conversation about how, you know, I wasn't really happy. I wanted to get out and blah, blah, blah. At the time, I was holding the billet 
for somebody of a much higher rank than I was. I had a lot more responsibility than somebody of my current grade would usually have on their shoulders because all the stuff we were responsible for ended up being ridiculously easy for me. Um, so they just gave me more and more responsibility and I was doing more and more people's jobs for them. So he sat me down and he said, I want you to do me a favor. Just entertain me. He said, put in a package for officer or put in a package for Morsock. And I didn't really know what Morsock was at the time. I, um, I figured as much that it was Navy SEALs, which I envisioned as guys with beards that run around and shoot guns and get to do a bunch of cool stuff. So officer was something I thought about, but it also meant that I needed to finish college, which after uh, I had left wasn't really something I was keen to go back to. So I was like, all right, had a lot most responsible, you know, respect for this guy. and I'll, I'll entertain your wishes. I put in a package for Morsock. I didn't really know what it was. Um, at the time, Marshall got set up in 2006. This was in probably end of 2011, I think, was when I started the process. So nothing had really been super ironed out as far as recruiting or how how to get there or all these people that can facilitate it as it is today. Um, now, if you drive around Camp Lejeune, there's billboards that say, Today will be different. It has a Marsock operator on it. And um, there's all this recruiting, and there's recruiters which do the paperwork for you and everything else. But at the time, there was none of that. So I had to figure out how to get my SOCOM physical done, uh, which is goes through the gambit of are you physically qualified to go to special operations? Is your GT, your intelligence score, high enough? Uh, is your PFT, your physical fitness test, score high enough? Uh, your swim qual, all this other stuff. So... After figuring all that out myself, I ended up finding myself at a assessment selection for Marsog uh, out here in North Carolina. So I flew all the way to North Carolina, um, showed up day one, and we went through the entire assessment selection process, which is pretty similar to the Special Forces model um, as far as they go through all the physical fitness stuff, um, psycho- psychological evaluations, they go off of character attributes of the individual, effective intelligence, your critical thinking abilities, uh, all these all these wickets which they're looking for, which kind of gives you a shock group um, of whether you are what they want or what they don't want. And uh, at the time, I figured, you know, I got nothing to lose. I want to get out anyway. If I make it through this, then it's a plus. But if not, then I'm still exactly where I was before. So I found myself uh, in selection, and I had no idea what to expect. People had been there and trained for it, and I had literally just kind of shown up. I still have maintained the uncanny ability to run fast, so (laughs) I think that attributed to my success. But the very first ruck run that we had, I listened to Mike's podcast, by the way, and he was talking about how he trained for his ruck runs, and he would ruck run all the time. And I was sitting there while I was listening to it. I was like, man, I never did any of that. (laughs) Um, So I'm standing there at 5.30 in the morning with a rucksack on, and all the instructors are up there, and there's there's probably 100 100 candidates, is what they called us, candidates. So there's 100 of us standing there, and this is our four-mile ruck. 
we do a four, uh, I want to say an eight and a ten, and then there's an unknown distance. Um, I don't know if it's changed since, but so stand there for our four, and um, they're like, ready, go, and everybody starts running. <laughs> and I'm, li- I'm literally, you know, beside myself. I'm like, why is everybody running with this 45-pound rucksack on their back? Like, I didn't get the memo, you know? So I just started running, and I had no no plan, no, um, you know, method to the madness of how to accomplish this task. And um, I ran until my legs were burning and my lungs were on fire, and I, I tried to speed walk for as long, like, as short amount of time as possible and then keep running. I think I ended up getting 14th in the class, um, and the instructor came up to me afterwards, like, Hey, Kent, your time's good. Um, you know, you passed the time. What was your method? <laughs> and I was like, instructor, I, I didn't have a method. I just ran. <laughs> and uh, he's like, so you didn't do three and one? And by three and one, he meant like, you know, three minutes running, one minute walking, three minutes running, one minute walking. I mean, the walking's still, you know, stepping it out, walking fast. But, you know, no, no I didn't do any of that. So I, I kind of applied these principles later on through the rest of the rucks and did relatively well. And um, I remember being up there. Um, they take you to a disclosed location for the second portion of the uh, assessment and selection process. I remember being up there sitting on my rack and uh, people that drop, they take away their stuff and they disappear like they were never there. I remember sitting up there and there was much less of us than when we began. And they uh, posted some numbers on the board because you just have a number. And uh, they tell you to be outside at whatever time. And I was outside, and we ended up, you know, my group was the one that got selected. I was like, well, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, that's probably the biggest accomplishment in my life up to that point, you know, making it through special operations selection. Um, so from there, <clears throat> um, from there, I had to go back to my parent command for six months before I could start the pipeline to become an operator. Um, and it wasn't really a great time. I think I think people started to resent MARSOC during those years. Um, They're losing a lot of their best dudes to this new entity in the Marine Corps. Um, I got pulled into multiple offices asking why I don't want to be a truck master and um, this, that, and the other. Uh, why I don't want to stay um, and that the grass isn't greener on the other side. But, you know, I, I struggled with why I'm going to go do what I'm going to do. And uh, at the time, I read a book named The Heart and the Fist. And up until this point, you know, like I said earlier, I wasn't able to accomplish what I set out to do. And in the beginning, it was to get away from home and to go to war. And I think it had at that point manifested into I wanted to make a difference. And um, I remember writing it down on paper because I've always been a firm believer that when you are in a crappy situation on your way to accomplish a goal, it's important not to forget why you're there in the beginning. So a lot of people along the way become discouraged. I spend all this time at college trying to become something, and then when I am you know, drowning in that job, which I spent so long trying to make reality, I lose track of why I'm there in the first place. Um, 
I think, you know, my wife is a nurse and more often than not, she comes home discouraged by, you know, the patients that she sees or how they treat her and everything else. And I think it's paramount that we always remember why we set on the path that we set before ourselves. And the heart and the fist was something that kind of brought that all to light for me. I was a man that was a humanitarian, um, and he felt that he couldn't make his difference in the world that way. Um, so he became a Navy SEAL so he could defend those people that couldn't look after themselves. And I wrote it, you know, I wrote it down hard copy that, you know, I wanted to become a special operator because I wanted to go to places in the world to defend people who were being terrorized by terrorists and people that were bullies in this world that they couldn't look after themselves. They couldn't protect their families. They couldn't protect their way of life by themselves. And I could, I could make a difference for those people, you know, um, make the world a better place if you want. So I went back to Marsoc, um, in 2000 and beginning of 2012. Um, maybe it was middle of 2012. Start the nine month long pipeline to become an operator. And it doesn't mean that you make it. So after census selection, you still need to make it through the gambit of the pipeline before you can become an operator. So for nine months, we went through all the usual training, you know, that special forces and Navy SEALs go through amphibious training with boats and everything else to patrolling and shooting and um, all, all those wickets of becoming a special operator in school. And after nine months, uh, I made it through all that with some of the best friends that I'll probably ever have and uh, made it to a team. Um, and then from there, we, a lot of, a lot of guys from the pipeline, I was on the same team. Um, I was with November Company with 3rd Marine Raider Battalion and then with Lima Company, uh, did a deployment to Africa. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. Wow. <laughs> so what was, uh, I, I have so many questions for you based on everything you've just shared. Um, I don't quite know where to start. I know. We were kind of talking before that you would just let me talk. So I no, like you're I perfect. Talk for like an hour, but it's No, not even slightly. Not even slightly. It was perfect and absolutely fascinating. Um, do you remember? So, okay. So it sounds like there are two phases of training there of MARSOC training. There's the the first selection assessment portion, and then there's a nine-month operator training. Is that correct? Yeah. So assessment selection is um, here at in North Carolina. Um, so Marines come from all over the Marine Corps now. Any MOS can try out for it. Um, I think you have to be a E4, a corporal, or an officer to become a special operations officer. Um so you go through that entire pipeline. It's very similar to Special Forces, um, all the physical fitness training, hikes, swims, um, running. Uh, they do obstacle courses. They do strength training, um, all these tests. Um, they go up and you're assessed on your teamwork ability, your critical thinking, your psychological testing, um, all these different things to become 
to be able to be selected. Uh, so I've, I've actually had the opportunity to go up there as an instructor to see behind the curtains, and it's it's pretty impressive the, the things that go on up there just to make sure you're picking the right caliber of guys. Because I think now if you sit down and you sit in a room of operators, most are this A-type personality that um, think anything is possible that will kind of never quit kind of thing. And so the process, I think, works. It's, they're all very – all of us are very similar, like-minded individuals. So after that happens – you go back to your parent command for a certain amount of time uh, to prepare or don't prepare. Like, I didn't get to prepare. <laughs> I had to continue doing training for the command or whatever. Um, then you go come back to North Carolina to go to the Marine Raider Training Center where you do the individual training course, which is called ITC. Um, the individual training course is nine months made up of four different phases. Um and through those phases, you will learn how to employ a weapon, how to uh, patrol, how to set up an ambush, how to train foreign forces, um, how to do reconnaissance, how to do amphibious assaults, um, all those different things, unconventional warfare, um, before you graduate and you earn your defi- device um, and you get told that you're a raider. So... That's kind of the process of becoming a Marshlog operator. Was Did things change for you once you got to go back in as an instructor and see behind the curtain? Like, did you have a whole different kind of understanding and appreciation for the whole process? Yeah, I actually uh, I actually got to look at my own shot group, which was kind of cool. Really? So they log, they log all the candidates that have ever been up there kind of thing that have made it through. So... I got to look at my own shot group, and um, the the only thing I was out of black on was physical fitness, which is funny to me because <clears throat> now my entire life revolves around fitness, mind, body, spirit kind of thing. Um, I think it was because I only got 17 pull-ups or something on the PFT at the time, which the max back then before they revised the standards was 20. So. Most guys show up to, you know, uh, special operations selection with perfect scores and all, all that kind of stuff. So I'm not sure what the reasoning was for that. It might have been swim times. I mean, there's a lot of factors that goes into the physical fitness portion. But all these other groups that kind of fall into center are based off of character attributes that you're looking for in the candidates. Um, their ability to handle stress, their ability to work in a team environment. Um, the resiliency, all, all these kinds of things that help you to select that individual for the job that you're expecting him to be able to do downrange kind of thing. So what did you what did you teach while you were there? Um, so it's not so much classes. It's more it's more assessment and selection. So you're li- you literally have all these wickets that you are looking for in each individual. So everything's very professional. Everything's very scripted. Um, it's really on the individual to act the way that they would act in all these situations that they're put in. Got it. Okay. But I really can't d- divulge the entire process because no, it's, no, of course uh, not. you know, confidential and everything else. 
of course not. Was there a particular moment that stood out in those nine long months of training that just to this day you remember and smile or the opposite of that and you just kind of cringe? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's definitely some, it's definitely some crazy times that were in the pipeline. I really, I mean, that's, I think that's why I wrote down in my book why I'm doing it, you know, because I mean, I had an injury during the pipeline too, which I think is the worst possible thing that can happen for a dude. I, um, we were doing a workout in the morning, which was the norm. You know, you wake up at 5 a.m., you're doing a workout to start off your day. You run everywhere throughout the entire process. You carry your buddy to and from chow, um, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, so everything's physically demanding. And so if, if your body's broken, you're, you're already behind, behind the game, you know. So I end up rolling my ankle pretty terribly right before the amphib phase and uh it was all swollen up they were like this is you know type three whatever you want type type three ankle sprain i don't i have no idea um but it sucked so but the the next day i had to fin so you had to put flippers on and we went out to this bay and you literally had to fin uh i think it was like 2k or something um, out to the river and back. So with a sprained ankle, if you can imagine like that flapping motion with a flipper on was, was pretty diabolical. So I ended up duct taping my entire ankle up so it wouldn't move in like the fin position <laughs> and oh just kick, kick for like an hour and a half or however long it was, um, to make sure I passed that because you can't fall behind the class. Or you either get rolled or you get dropped. Um, and then it's, you know, you're not really coming back after that. So I think the attrition rate for, so the attrition rate's a high for ANS just for the assessment and selection process. I think we had 100, 115 guys and 43 got selected. And then of all those ANSs will make up an individual training course. Um, and, our our ITC started with 120 individuals. I think we graduated 47. So the attrition rate's pretty high, but not you know not everybody's going to make it through that. So um, and then one other one other thing that comes to mind that I think of during hard times, I guess, is we're sitting on the side of a field pulling a watch um, in the middle of the night. We're looking through MBGs, waiting for this patrol vehicle to come around this field. And um, the rest of the team's all taking turns sleeping, and they're down down the woods a little way, and we're out in the outer cordon, you know, trying to keep eyes on this field. And the guy, the kid next to me looks over, and everybody calls me Phil, James Phillips, so my nickname is Phil. And he's like, Phil, what are we doing here? And I'm like, what do you what do you mean? And he's like, like, why are we doing this? Like, I feel like, I feel like this isn't worth it. And like, right there in my head, you know, I had never at all one time during that entire process, no matter how bad it sucks, no matter how winded I was, no matter how broken I felt, no matter how demoralized I was, um, had thought about quitting. 
And here this kid is <laughs> sitting next to me on this field in the middle of the night, freezing our butts off, looking through MBGs, having slept or hungry, you know, cold, everything else. And he's he's questioning everything. And that's something I think about a lot. You know, that's 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 mental toughness. And I think mental toughness is something that a lot of people lack. Um, and again, I think that's why it's so imperative for me to always write down why I set out on whatever path I'm on so I can always have something to refer back to and remember why I'm doing what I'm doing. If you could, if you could give everybody in the world one trait, would it be that mental toughness or would it be that and something else? Um, it's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) I think mental toughness is huge. I mean, it's, it's, um, I think it fuels everything. If, if, if you can see the world as a place where anything is possible, where you can apply yourself and you can try to the best of your abilities and you can strive for your goals fearlessly with mental toughness, not being swayed in your path to get there, then, you know, I think far more people would be successful. I mean, far more people would accomplish what they set out to do. I feel so many people these days are, oh, America, America is not where the American dream is at anymore. America has become this, this weak thing. Everything. I mean, these are all excuses. America and life and everything else can be whatever you want to make it. I mean, that's just, that's just how I, I was brought up and that's how I view the world. You're only really limited by yourself. I agree with that 100%. Now, going forward a little bit in your life to to these deployments, you I believe you mentioned Africa is one of them, and then there was another place that you went. How many actually? How many deployments have you been on in total? Um, so I'm about to go on my fourth um, in October. And this one in October, can I can I ask about that one? Um, not today. <laughs> not today. No worries. Um, so what about the other three? Where have where um, have you been? So the, so the first two were with um, so still frustrations. You know, I mean, resiliency is everything. If, if you set out the to accomplish a goal, then you have to see it through. And I think that's that's something else that you know current me um, struggles with on a regular basis but so my first two deployments were Muse um, which a Muse is a Marine Expeditionary Unit um, for the Marine Corps it is basically like an aircraft carrier and everything else that floats around the ocean that can be deployed anywhere in the world um, so with my first unit we did two of those to Okinawa, Japan, and then from there we went to the Philippines, Thailand, um, places in the Pacific to do cross-training and training exercises with um, the Thai and Filipino Marine Corps and that kind of thing. Uh, So those are my first two deployments as a Lance Corporal, which is a E3, and then as a Corporal, which is an E4. Um, 
So those are my first two with when I was with artillery uh, out of California. And then with special operations, I was deployed to Africa, um, to southeastern Africa for six months. Man, both of those, I mean, well, all of those places, but especially especially going to Africa had to be like a whole other world, especially based on where you've grown up and then where you had been prior. Yeah, I mean, I think um, another thing I'm passionate about, I think, is travel. Uh, you can't really gain perspective without um, without breaking out of your shell. I think far too many people never even leave their hometown to really understand, you know, how fortunate we are to live where we where we do. Um, seeing the poverty or terror or death or famine and everything else that's so rampant in the world really makes you appreciate, you know, what we have here. We sit around and bicker about such stupid things, I feel like, <laughs> um, when people over there are just worrying about where when they can find the next thing to eat or if they're going to make it through the next week kind of thing. So it just puts your entire life in perspective. Was there a particular instance that really drove that point home for you? Um, I think on the last deployment, uh, just just seeing, you know, we take we take supplies out to all these remote areas. Uh, we end up having, you know, so we end up taking out. Let me let me restart that question. <laughs> <laughs> so so we ended up. Uh, taking rice and all this other stuff out to these remote areas where these families were basically living in these huts made out of sticks and old tarps um, out in the middle of nowhere. Um, You know, to talk to them, to see how they're doing, whatever else, you know, humanitarian stuff. Uh, We call it key leader engagements. Um, Just seeing what's happening in the area, um, if they've been harassed by... um, terrorists or whatever else um and we 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 bring them all these supplies and all this food and everything else and you 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 know that these bad dudes are going to come right back in there and take all this stuff that you're giving them and there's these little little kids living in rags um that look just like the little kids that are over here you know and to run around barefoot over there with a t-shirt on that's torn or dirty and you don't know when last time they had an actual meal was and you give them all these supplies or you buy them shoes or toothbrushes on Amazon like like I did and you you know you don't know when you go back the next day they have none of that stuff because at night it was all taken or the village was terrorized by these extremists that are trying to influence the population so they can maintain control. Um, so I, th- I think that kind of thing, that kind of thing constantly reminds me of how privileged we are in places like this, you know? And I think, you know, ultimately that's, that's why we're at war. We're, we're at war to defend the freedoms and the way of life that we have here currently. I think people lose track of that. I mean, but they really don't see outside their own 
little world or their own little bubbles. I think that's why perspective is so important. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds like you got that. You've gotten that tenfold with everywhere you've been. Were you were you nervous at all going on your first deployment, or are you nervous at all going on this next one? Um, I don't really think nervous is a thing. I think uh, might be a little cliche, but I think you know we we train our entire lives to go do this do this job, and it's something I'm I'm eager to do as as long as I can do it. Um, I've Struggled with some injuries. Uh, I, I, I got a back injury last deployment. And that's something that um, last summer I was possibly going to be medically separated for. And um, I fought my way back to get back to a, a point where I can still do my job safely without endangering the guy to the left and right of me. Um, so I have an opportunity to do my job again um in october so i think you know i spent all this time becoming what i am and um lost a lot of really good friends along the way um both in training and in combat and those same guys i went through training with the same guys that have put in the time the effort to become what i am you know don't have those opportunities anymore. You don't have those, um, I mean, it's, it's been taken away from them. So for me, not, not to perform my job, not to, not to go down range and make, make a difference and do all the things that they set out to do. You know, it's kind of, you kind of got to honor them or do it, do it for more than yourself, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. That can't be easy to lose people while you're out there, especially people that you're close to. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, we we all sign up for, you know, we all we all know ultimately what uh, what could happen. I don't, I mean, when I'm downrange, I don't really think oh, today could be today or whatever else. You you are so conditioned into reacting in a certain way or. Um, thinking a certain way that's that's kind of really the last thing that happens you know it's it's it's, it's almost silly but you know in, in my head if it, if it happens it happens you know um it's not really something i dwell on or think about often i'd i'd rather be there doing my job because if i'm not there doing my job then I'm endangering somebody else you know right is it I think hard we all to really know what the what the cost could be and we're all willing to to give that cost if, if need be, you know. Yeah. Now, how do you juggle that with the fact that you have you have a family at home? I mean, you have you have your wife and you have Porter, your dog now. Has that changed anything? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it for sure changes stuff. You know, I mean, um, I don't, I don't I don't really know how to answer, answer that question. I think uh at, at the same at the same time it's still it's still a driving factor that, you know, I signed up for this. This is this is who I am, this is what I do. Um and I think I think all the people in my life know 
or knew this come you know coming into it they knew they knew the possibilities they knew the expectations um and honestly you know all the all the guys that I deploy with all the people that I train with all the people we prepare for war together with are as much a family as those that we come home to uh, you know that's that's not everybody's opinion i mean that's just mine but um i got friends like murphy and joe and all those guys that you've met that you know i, I wouldn't even hesitate to to stand in front of a gun for to you know to be there side by side fighting for our lives together you know that's that's just part of i guess the brotherhood of what, of what we do and if, if I'm not downrange looking after those guys that I've trained with day in and day out, that I've seen every day, whose families I know, whose, you know, vulnerabilities I know, I'm not doing my job. I'm not, I'm not honoring their family. I'm not honoring them, you know, so it's, it's really a two-sided coin, I guess. You got to pick yeah. your poison. Absolutely. What was it like for you when you saw it? It was over when you thought the back injury was was it. Um, like what went through your mind, I guess. I mean, it's it's, de- it's definitely definitely difficult. I mean, being a college athlete, um, going from being a college athlete to a Marine to a Marine Special Operator, um, I've never I've never had a debilitating injury before. I've always sounds stupid, but I feel like this is. It's more common than not. You know, you look at I've, – I've used this example a lot lately. You know, you look at Tom Brady this last um, Super Bowl, and they asked him, when was the last time you doubted yourself? And um, he's like, honestly, I, I, don't, I don't know. You know, I never have. And some people will sit there and say, you know, that's arrogance. But you can ask me the same question. When was the last time I doubted myself? I'm never down on myself. I think that's just a mindset. I think that's that's a personality type. And I think that that injury was the first time in my life where I didn't feel immortal. You know, I didn't feel, you know, bulletproof, where I literally felt vulnerable, where I felt that if I got jumped in a parking lot or something like that, that I wouldn't be able to defend myself. It was so debilitating that I would be on the floor trying to catch my breath because the pain was so bad that I wasn't able to do anything else. And I knew that if I was that debilitated, I'd be a risk to the team, you know, in a dynamic environment. Um, and I literally could not do my job anymore. That's That would get dudes killed. If I went down in a, shoot, in a house or something like that, you know, that takes guys out of the fight to look after me and that takes me out of the fight in a paramount situation, you know, that endangers lives. So that was something that really hit home for me. You know, I've never felt vulnerable before. I've never been injured to that capacity before. I had a stress fracture running track in high school, but that was what? It was, that was four and a half, you know, six weeks out or something like that where I could still kind of work out. And I came back and I was fine. You know, what's, what's a month and a half versus this injury, which was potentially the rest of my life? Um, and coaches telling me you you can't ever squat again or you can't ever do this again. You know, can't for me 
camp for me isn't a word. You know, you have you have a choice. You have a, you have a choice whether or not you want to try. You have a choice whether or not you can. If you're missing an arm, if you're missing a leg, if you're missing an eye, you can't do some things. But me, an able-bodied individual with a mind to, to pe- persevere, you know, can't is not a word. Can't is an option. So these doctors and stuff telling me that I can't do things, that I may never be able to do this again, I may never be able to do that. It's just that that was probably one of the worst things that ever happened to me. Um, and it's something I struggle with hugely going through the rehab process. Um, I'm looking at MRIs and x-rays and trying to figure out what exactly was wrong with my back and steroid inject- injections into my spine and um, all this stuff that was going on in, in hopes of fixing it um, just wasn't working. And it's, I mean, it's still not a hundred percent, you know, I, um, I have to be cognizant of what I'm doing in the gym. Um, some mornings I can feel it still in there. Just, you know, it's like this thing that I just have learned to kind of live with. Um, thankfully I've gotten it strengthened back to the point where it's no longer, you know, debilitating to to the point where it was, but I mean, that was, that was a huge life change for me. I've never, I've never experienced anything like that before. On the flip side of that question, what was it like when you found out that things were actually going to be okay and that you could continue doing what you've trained your whole life to do? Um, well, so my mother's always had a saying that everything's always okay in the end. And I'll, I'll always believe that as long as I live. Um, I think it's just very easy to lose sight of that in the moment. And that's exactly what I did. So through, through the, through the rehab process, through everything else, you know, I've met some awesome people. I've met, you know, my strength coach now that helps me out with my workouts, you know, back specific stuff, which has helped me to improve month by month. Um, all, all that kind of stuff is, has really helped me to be back to, you know, mind, body, spirit of who, who I actually, you know, who I usually am, um, to get me out of that funk of, you know, not able to work out. I can't, I can't do that. Like they said, I, I can't, I can't, 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 um, this mortal debilitated thing. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I think it was a huge growing and learning process of, picking yourself back up off the floor. I mean, nothing's nothing in life is always going to be 100%. You're never going to be optimal. You're going to have setbacks. You're going to, you know, nothing. They say every plan, no, no, no plan ever survives first contact. I think that's super true for life as well, you know. You have to be able to flex and adapt and roll with the punches. So I think now that I know that, you know, I can do this uh, this next deployment, I can perform my job and I, I can um, continue on my path. I mean, that's that was what I wanted from the get-go. So I think I'm definitely stronger for it. Yeah. Good. Good. Now, um, now a while back, you got that dog I had I had mentioned. How has how has that been? How has that affected your life? Yeah, so uh 
Um, I got Porter this past winter. Um, and like I said earlier, like the whole injury process, the whole – so before that, I had never, ever been to medical for any anything other than you getting a booster shot, which happens pretty often in the Marine Corps or in the military in general, you know, to keep you up to date on your – um, shots and dental and everything else. But besides all the routine stuff, like I was never that guy that went to medical because my knee hurt. I was never that guy that went to medical because I had a headache. You know, I kind of prided myself in being self-sufficient. And I think I had enough know-how from college athletics of how to listen to my body and recuperate. But so from the injury, it was the first time I'd ever frequented the medical facility or been put on limited duty status or, you know, been taken out of the game kind of thing. You know, when you get put on a limited duty status, you can no longer work out. You can no longer do battalion PT. You can no longer go do field duty. Um, it puts you in this timeout. You can no longer go do shooting or all this, all the things that are required of me as an operator. I was limited and not not allowed to do because of my injury. Um, so I think you know that that mentally it's like a huge blow on me. I was in this depressed depressed state and um, looking at getting forced out of the Marine Corps, forced out of the military. Not really sure what I wanted to do, and uh, you know I got got a call from. Well, my buddy Jake from when I was at 311 uh, got out. You know Jake. He um, got hooked in with Latch Liberty at University of Utah, uh, and he got Brody, his service dog, at the time. And before I went to Africa on deployment, he was like, "Hey man, just put it, you know, put a package in, and uh, we'll see what happens." So I went ahead and did that. I came back from deployment, and uh, it really all happened at just the right time. I was really dealing with that injury, and I was in a pretty bad mental state, and uh, things weren't really going my way, and it didn't look good. Uh wasn't positive. Um, wasn't very optimistic for the future. And uh got a call from Joan, who's like the Mother Teresa of dogs, and... Um, <laughs> Got told that I got approved for my, you know, first service dog, and that's it's been life changing ever since. The close knittedness of people, um, it's really a whole another family unit in itself, and it's all supporting. Um, everybody supports each other, and being able to have Porter every day, um, good good days and bad days. I mean, he really helped me through the recovery process. Um, I knew even if I was going to get medically separated that, you know, everything was, would be okay, that um, at, the, at the end of the day, I'm going to have this derpy puppy that doesn't care about anything in the world but me. And um, mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, I think that's something that everybody needs. Everybody needs somebody who doesn't care about anything but them. So. Yeah, especially him. I mean, he's just like... I mean, he's a bee's knees times 10, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'm a little biased, but I'd like to think that he's the golden child of last liberty. 
<laughs> yeah, he's definitely given he's definitely giving Brody a run for his money as Golden Child, which <laughs> if Jake hears this, he won't be happy about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, did you did you think he would make as much of a difference as he's made for you? No, I mean, um, honestly, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't really think I needed needed a service dog. Um, my first two deployments were pretty anticlimactic. Um, my last deployment, you know, was to a combat zone, but you know, I didn't think really it had any effect on me. Um, I thought, you know, my mindset of the world as an operator was the norm. You know, going to a public place and Concealed carrying everywhere was, you know, that was just my right as a citizen, and that's something that, you know, probably everybody does. Um, me wanting to sit in a restaurant with my back to a wall or something or being able to see the door or being able to see the room or sitting in the very back row of a movie theater or all these things were normal. I thought that was just, you know, that was just me being a normal dude, which – you know, I, I quickly learned wasn't wasn't the norm. Um, the fact that I didn't really like shopping malls, didn't really like large crowds, I didn't I'll get anxious in, in bars, um, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I didn't really pick up on any of that until I had conversations with people. And uh, I think he's helped me huge, you know. Molly, my wife, wants to go to breweries or wants to go to these um, large public settings or whatever else. And instead of worrying about, you know, the next thing coming or what what could be a threat or is that dude carrying a pistol or whatever else, I am focused on this, this dog the whole time. And it, it's a distraction in itself. I mean, people look at your dog and they're like, oh, look, a dog and all this stuff. And you kind of... You know, at first, I think you get a little hyper attentive to the fact that everybody's staring at you now, whereas I'd rather be a gray man and a force multiplier or something happened, right? Um, but then in turn, you know, the dog becomes a distraction for yourself and you're no longer thinking in that mindset. You're no longer getting stressed out because people are bumping into you or there's um, so much going on or this loud noises or whatever else, whatever whatever makes you tick kind of thing, you know that kind of fades away. And I think the more the more you do it, the more normal you can be, you know. And he kind of alerts me to things that I may or may not pick up on. And my head's constantly on a swivel. I'm always looking for my looking in my environment and seeing what's going on, see who's behind me or who's near me or whatever else. You know, it's just the way we kind of see the world. But now. Now I have this awesome dog that watches watches out for me um, instead. So yeah, it's pretty it's pretty it's pretty special and it's pretty life changing. Good, good. I mean, so many people will will ask, you know, well, is it is it hard to give these dogs up when it's time to give them to their veterans? And everything you just said is exactly why it's not because it makes such a difference in somebody's life. And really, it's always it's always amazing to watch that whole pairing process um, between, between a dog and their veteran, just because it's like the dog really knows from the get-go who they're meant to be with. And it's just this 
it's just this incredible bond to watch. Yeah, so, I'll, I'll, I'm glad you guys have each I'll other. I'll never forget the first night when uh, I was up at the cabin with Porter, and um, Jake, obviously Jake and I are really good friends. And Joan was Jake was I think probably the last person to kind of have Porter. And we were at, down at the grocery store and whatever, and Porter was trying to find Jake the whole time. Didn't really want to listen to me, and I was like, man, it's not going great. <laughs> and uh, we went back up to the the cabin or whatever. And Joan was like, Jake, you cannot sleep up there with him. He has to be up there with Porter by himself. And Jake, Jake is like, come on, you know, we haven't seen each other forever or whatever. So Jake ended up sleeping down at the main house, and it was just me and Porter up at the cabin. I remember sitting on the couch, and Porter was done pacing around or whatever and just sat down on the carpet. And we just literally stared at each other for probably five minutes. <laughs> and it was kind of like <laughs> he was he was sizing me up, and I was sizing him up, and I was like, yeah, sorry, buddy. Like this, this is who you got, you know. <laughs> and um, I, th- I think after that, you know, we kind of we kind of bonded. And now he doesn't ever leave my side. I, I mean, he'll he'll hang out with other people and play fetch or whatever else. Like if you throw his ball, he'll he'll pretend like you're his best friend. But if I go in the bathroom or I go somewhere else, he's he's like my shadow. He'll come sit outside the door. He'll be in there with me or look for me or everything else. So. It's it's pretty it's a pretty special bond for sure. Absolutely, I'm glad that's the way. I'm glad that's the way it is. Now, what's what's kind of next for you? You have this deployment, and then what do you have planned? Um, so unless World War Three kicks off, which I mean, you know, I'll do my job, <laughs> but. I think, you know, this is, this is kind of going to be my last deployment. Um, where we're going should be, should be pretty good from my terms. Um, I should be able to do my job and, uh, you know, Im- impact some things. Um, and then afterwards, right now, I'll have 10 months left before I exit out of the military. So, you know, I'm at, 30 years old right now um and nobody really tells this secret but uh everybody has to get out eventually so like i'm not going to be a marine when i'm 70 well all right so i'll take that back once a marine always a marine but i'm not gonna be an active duty marine at 70 years old you know every, everybody everybody has to make a transition at some point if they're fortunate enough so my plan right now is to uh, transition out of the Marine Corps in 2020, um, and I think I'm probably going to end up going back to school. And uh, I don't really think I'm done yet trying to make an impact. Um, I'm just going to try and refocus on something else. I don't know if that's – right now I'm not sure if that's going to be in the medical field or something else where I can transition to, you know, veterinary medicine or um, – nursing or 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 something where I can help people or continue to help people. So we'll see. I got I got a little bit of time to kind of square it down, but COA one right now is uh you know veterinary school. Uh COA two will be some kind of medical and then COA three would be sports med or something like that. So we'll see. 
But whatever it is, as as Joan says, that you'll be continuing to uh, to make a difference in your little corner of the world. Hope so. Yeah, that's the plan. Yeah. <laughs> but I think I'd still like to do some kind of volunteer service. You know, I, Doctors Without Borders, that kind of thing is still still pretty appealing to me. Um, being able to go to some other country somewhere or somewhere, even here in the U.S., it is not as well well off or as fortunate, you know. Yeah, absolutely. That would be incredible. Well, you have an amazing head on your shoulders, and I can't imagine you doing something and not making an impact wherever you go. I appreciate that. Well, thank you for for doing this podcast with me. Um, we've been we've been friends for a while, and you're a really incredible person. And I think there will be quite a few people out there that can that can resonate with your story. So I really appreciate you being here today. Thanks for having me, Paige. Really appreciate it. Absolutely.